welcome to Rising. We have a fantastic show for you today. I'm joined by Bacha Ungar-Sargon. Lovely to see you, Bacha. So great to be here with you, Robbie. Well, why don't you start us off? Yes, indeed. Well, Robbie, the House Select Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is holding hearings on Capitol Hill this morning. Today's hearing will focus on Louisiana and Missouri's lawsuit against President Biden. That suit accuses the White House of colluding with major social media companies to flag and censor content related to COVID and elections. The Attorney General of Louisiana, Jeff Landry, testified about his findings in the case. Let's watch some of that. A lawsuit has uncovered a censorship enterprise that spans numerous government institutions and all major social media platforms. And that censorship enterprise has been widely successful in achieving its goals. White House Director of Digital Strategy, Robert Flattery, was impressed when YouTube reported their success in reducing watch time of borderline content by 70%. This is what we found in our case. The FBI claims a success rate of 50% in getting platforms to censor content flagged as misinformation. The Election Integrity Partnership, now known as the Virality Project, bragged that four major platforms they worked with all had high response rates and had 35% of URLs shared with Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube were either labeled, removed, or soft blocked. But not before he was interrupted by U.S. Virgin Islands Delegate Stacey Plaskett following an outbreak of chaos in the hearing floor. Take a look. And everyone, scientists and violent journalists throughout was shadow banned, year had censored silence on other federal buildings for their as valid well. concerns. That's, I would like to submit that letter for the record. COVID the vaccines. And everyone that violence throughout that past year had inflicted a lot of damage on other federal buildings as well. And that's, so I would like to submit correction. that letter for the record. That's just to not correct a correction. The gentlelady's out of recognized. order. That's not a correction. Belongs I said he refused to join the order. Fifth attorneys. General lady order. has not been recognized. Time belongs to the Attorney General from the state of Louisiana. Mr. Landry, you can proceed. Thank, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'm grateful for the opportunity to join Congress today. The Democratic witness, a fellow at the Constitutional Law Center at Stanford Law School, Matt Seligman, had this to say in his testimony. Let's watch. Attacking those platforms attempts to combat misinformation. The plaintiffs in cases like Missouri v. Biden do disservice to the principles of free speech that they claim to support. And they invite the grave consequences of misinformation that they seek to spread themselves unchecked. It is perhaps not a coincidence that the proponents of measures that would handicap social media platforms' efforts to combat misinformation are often prolific purveyors of misinformation themselves. Senator Schmidt and Attorney General Landry, who just testified, filed a brief in the Supreme Court supporting a suit by the state of Texas seeking to block the counting of electoral votes uh, of, from four states that President Biden won. Over 100 members of Congress, including members of this committee today, also filed briefs supporting that suit. 
Texas's complaint included the fantastical claim that the statistical likelihood that President Biden fairly won the 2020 election was less than one in quadrillion. That is false. Members of this committee have claimed that Dominion voting machines fraudulently flipped votes from Trump to Biden. That is false. Members of this committee have claimed that thousands of ballots were cast on behalf of dead and unqualified voters. That is false. Members of this committee have claimed that election workers around the country counted fake or fraudulent votes. That is false. And on October 19, 2020, Chairman Jordan tweeted that Democrats are trying to steal the election after the election. Hmm. So I, I just think that's such a non sequitur, right? right? I mean, what, <laughs> right? Is that what you? I mean, like, what? Yeah. So a person who has disagreed with you minimally, and let's say even said something that turned out to be misinformation maximally, therefore has no right to to point out when actual censorship is happening. I mean, how does that make any sense? Right. So I followed this case pretty closely. Uh, my own reporting, the Facebook files about the CDC's efforts to pressure that social media company into taking down COVID-related so-called misinformation, any content that could uh, theoretically cause people to question whether to get vaccinated. That whole effort um, comes as a result of this uh, of this lawsuit. Um, I worked with uh, with the new Civil Liberties Alliance, which is a civil liberties uh, organization that's helping uh, with the suit, and uh, they made these emails um, accessible to me, the, you know, these emails that showed a routine level of communication between the Centers for Disease Control and moderators at all sorts of social media companies, but Facebook in particular, to, uh, you know, to address claims that they thought were false. And a lot of those claims, I, I do personally think they were false, uh, but the basis eventually for doing it was not just to prevent falsehood, but they, they were worried about the harm that could result for from people being discouraged about vaccines, even for children by the end. And this was coming at a time, obviously, that the Biden administration, the Biden White House, was saying things like, you know, Facebook is killing people because it's leaving up too much information. You know, what are they, if they're not going to do something about this, we'll make them do something about this. You know, we'll punish them. We'll hurt the company. You know, that kind of thing. That's the influence campaign we're talking about here. I think it's totally wrong. It was totally inappropriate. Um, it chilled the discussion around these topics. Uh, and, you know, all, there are all sorts of things that you couldn't talk about on Facebook that are now now we broadly recognize that was a very stupid way to conduct the discourse. You know, the you could not mention lab leak on Facebook for a full year. They would take it down. They would take it down. And now that looks, you know, even more idiotic than it looked at the time. Right. So I think there's two issues here. Um, you know, first of all, there are things that were one that we now accept as true that if you posted them at the time, it would get taken down. You could have your account banned and so forth. OK, everybody saw that happen. Everybody knows that that happened. And the Democrats, rather than acknowledge that it happened because they got things wrong, instead, what you're going to see is over and over and over what you have seen, what you just saw right now, what you saw when Matt Taibbi and, and, and Michael Schellenberger were being grilled. You're you're going to see logical fallacy after logical fallacy. Uh, you're going to see uh, ad hominem attacks, right? Assassination of character. You're going to see non sequiturs. You're going to see them insulting people as a way of distracting from the fact that we all know is true, that in order to push their agenda, they 
completely censored information, much of which we now know to be true. Now, you could say that at the time, right, there were two competing sets of needs, right? The, the most generous interpretation, I'm so curious what you think of this argument, Robbie, is that the Biden administration truly believed what Dr. Fauci was saying, which was that, you know, you leave this stuff up at your peril, millions of people will die, we have to take it down to protect people, right? You know, so the, the most generous reading is that they truly believe that they were saving lives and that that somehow excused these, you know, infringements on, you know, our rights. Now, but even if they believe that then in the most generous terms, we know now that that was wrong, right? We know now that a lot of the stuff that got taken down in the name of saving lives actually turned out to be what they thought was true at the time is we now know is not true. So you have they have to admit that, right? I mean, if the, I could understand like at the time saying like, look, there's a, a, you know, we really believed we were saving lives, but now they need to say, and we were wrong and we're sorry, right? And instead mm -hmm. all they do is say, but you peddle misinformation on this totally other topic and therefore you don't deserve to have a say on this thing that we obviously got wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's a classic kind of philosophical argument against free speech to say, well, free speech is dangerous because, you know, what if you say something wrong and it causes somebody to get hurt? Uh, well, this is why you can't operate that way because you, well, what is, what is true? How do we know that would be the right thing to do? Because, we, you know, we, the idea of free speech is that you need to let everybody speak and make their case and their argument for what they think and then hopefully inform people will choose the right thing. They won't always choose the right thing, but more often than not, under that system, you allow truth to arise and people to, to follow it or learn from it. Uh, and right, in exactly this case, they tried to stop you from maligning the vaccine, particularly along the lines of of not reducing um, uh, case counts. They, you know, they wanted, the, the public health apparatus wanted to push vaccination on everyone uh, and then even have some intellectual support for requiring it on people in a variety of contexts. You know, certain employees, et cetera, were gonna be made to get the jab, millions of them, on, on a basis that this is how we would contain the spread of COVID. And then it turned out, lo and behold, which some people were saying all, all along was going to be the case, that the vaccine was not, you know, while it's protective against severe disease and death, uh, particularly for people who've not had COVID, or people, the elderly immunocompromised, it does not, cannot stem the cases themselves. It's not protective enough against infection. Uh, you know, that was that was the central fault, incorrect idea of, of the whole thing, because and that was the argument for, you know, was was for requiring it was really on. Well, you, you can't we can require it because if you don't get it, you could more easily spread it to a lot of other people. So this is how we contain the pandemic that turned out not to be that turned out to be substantially untrue. And uh, and you're right. They should just admit it and they should say we're sorry and they should think uh they should think twice next time whether it will be justified to have some vast restriction of speech. But of course, they're not going to do that. Of course, they'll never admit that they were wrong to have a vast restriction of speech, which is why these hearings are so important. And that ultimately, the action, I think, that needs to come from it is to put in check the government agencies communicating with the platforms, telling them to take down speech. Because at the end of the day, it's very hard to control what the platforms do themselves of their own volition. But we certainly don't need to be encouraging them and the government at the behest of the government to do more censorship. That's where the reining in really needs to take place. And I, I hope there's actual uh, legislation that comes out of these, these hearings, again, to constrain the government itself. A hundred percent. And, you know, we're going to talk about TikTok later, mm -hmm. but... Um
I mean, it's it's relevant here, right? One of the arguments against banning TikTok has been, well, all of these other social media companies are so deeply embedded with the deep state that we don't want to have a similar thing happen, right? We don't want more government involvement in social media companies, which would happen as a result of a ban. But TikTok, you know, we they, they, it's a Chinese company, right? We cannot haul the Chinese government, the Chinese Communist Party in front of the Senate, in front of Congress, right? And demand answers the way that our, our elected officials are doing right now. I mean, we could bring the CEO in, right? But what does that yeah. help us? We saw last week, it doesn't get you very far, right? Um, that, that what we're seeing here is, is our checks and balances working. We're seeing our elected officials standing up and saying, look, something happened happened here that was unconstitutional and we're, we're going to get to the bottom of it and that is mm -hmm. extremely important. We will indeed talk about TikTok in a little <laughs> bit and we'll have more rising right after this. Thirty-nine people are dead and 27 have been injured after a fire broke out at a migrant detention center along the U.S.-Mexico border in Mexico, officials report. Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador said authorities believe the Tuesday fire was caused by a protest started by some of the migrants detained in the center after they believed they found out they would be deported. Now, according to Mexican Attorney General's office, none of the civil servants or the security guards took any action to open the door to free the migrants who were trapped inside the cells. Um, so here is a clip of the moment that the center caught fire. It has no sound, uh, but the BBC did verify the footage through reverse searching the thumbnail. Uh, Anthony Gonzalez, a Venezuelan migrant who was held at the facility last week, said he finds it hard to believe that the migrants could have started the fire because they're behind padlocked doors and everything is taken from them before they enter, NBC writes. Now, according to Al Jazeera, Obrador said there will be, quote, no impunity for those responsible. Amnesty International is asking how is it possible that the Mexican authorities left human beings locked up with no way to escape. Um, Robbie, uh, this is such a horrific, horrific story and just more proof of how cruel it is to incentivize people to, to make this dangerous journey en masse to come to our borders when there is no legal way for them to stay here. I mean, this is, you know, yes, whoever set this fire, these deaths are on them. But I have to yeah. say, anything that has been happening in the United States, and there has been a lot of it, encouraging people to make that journey and amass there and wait with the expectation that they're going to be allowed into this country, has some of the blood on their hands. Yeah, but from watching that clip, I mean, you know, the fire's raging in right by where the people are trapped in the cell, and there are guards walking by, and apparently they said they freed women and children, but they left the men in there to burn until the authorities arrived. I mean, that seems just absolutely horrible. So I, I mean, yes, whoever set the fire, I assume it was one of the prisoners. Obviously, the, you know, that can be, we, we don't know. It might be hard to find that out. Um, it's possible to smuggle in all sorts of supplies into, you know, we know that from the own, our own U.S. Uh, prison system where drugs and other contraband make it in all the time. So I, I assume they could have had materials to start a fire. Um, but it's horrible, uh, uh, just, I mean, like <laughs> medieval torture to watch people being burned to death in a cell and not um, unlock it. Uh, so that's just really really disturbing. Um, look, I agree with you that uh, policies that contribute to people 
Uh, you know, so these were migrants uh, probably from, uh, from South America, from elsewhere, making their way eventually to the U.S., still in Mexico. Uh, policies that contribute to people undertaking this very, very dangerous journey are bad because people die doing it. They die out in the, in the wilderness trying to make it across the border. They die at the hands of uh, human smugglers, human traffickers. And it's just really bad and speaks to our need to have an immigration policy that, does, that, that, is, that is sane and does not cause people to take this journey. It is just horrific. I mean, they—they they are they these these they're just so sad. These souls who were killed in this horrific way, joined the 50 other people who were killed and who died in the back of a truck a year ago. Join the three people who died locked inside a, a train car along with 50 other people who were just sitting there to spend days in the same train car with these dead bodies. It is absolutely horrific. And, you know, there was a hearing with uh, Secretary Mayorkas a couple days ago, um, a Senate hearing, uh, in which it became completely clear what the administration's policy is, which is an open border policy, because Secretary Mayorkas refused to admit that there is a huge crisis on the border. And instead, he kept talking about the labor shortage. Every Democrat who asked him a question brought up the labor shortage. If you think the cartels are not watching that and thinking, well, we can supply labor, we're supplying labor. I mean, that's exactly what's happening. The Democrats talk about immigration in moral terms, but they think about it in economic terms. They see this open border as a way of easing the labor shortage that they benefit economically from and, and comes at the expense of the working class. It is absolutely horrific. And I'll just say this, um, Senator Lindsey Graham had a great idea. He, he pointed out that only 10% of people coming through Mexico, through the southern border illegally, who claim a asylum actually end up qualifying for asylum. So 90% of the people who are asking for asylum when they cross the border do not actually qualify, well, right? So he said, why don't we change the screening standard to the legal standard? And that way you would be able to send those 90% right back as soon as they showed up and claimed asylum that they don't qualify for. I mean, if it was an actually, if it was actually an open border, though, they, I mean, they wouldn't be detaining people in migrant facilities, right? They would be a legal, they could come here legally. Um, if, if we had a saner policy where it was easy to enter the country legally, you wouldn't have people, you know, crawling through the desert or being housed in facilities that get set on fire. You could, people could come here, they could work, they could go back and forth. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't really, I mean, you and I disagree on this. I, I'm not so, so much from an economic standpoint trying to, you know, protect American jobs. I, I, I want, but we do have a labor shortage. It's impossible to build houses. We have a housing crunch because you can't get construction crews to do anything uh, because we don't have enough people. So I think it would be it would make our country wealthier and better off if people could come here and they could work. And then you wouldn't have all these horrific deaths. But but we we have a policy of of uh, of of stopping people, not letting people come through. I mean, we're not enforcing it very well. So it's we it's weakly enforced. So people are able to sneak in under unsafe conditions. It's like the worst of both worlds. Right. It's just open enough to allow the cartels yes. to become billionaires by murdering people and yeah. trafficking them and sex trafficking them. So yeah. it's it's you know exactly like you said, the worst of both worlds. One hundred percent at President Biden's feet. One hundred percent at the feet of the Democrats who bolster this kind of approach. Um, you know. I, I, I just can't get over it. I mean, it's just abs the, the horror 
of what we are incentivizing under the guise of liberal compassion, which is actually masking, you know, the economic benefits that accrue to the elites and to the upper classes. Yeah, well, House Democrats have urged President Biden not to revive migrant family detention. A representative Pramila Jayapal, who is a central figure of the Judiciary Committee's immigration panel, and at least 100 other lawmakers wrote to Biden a letter saying, maintain your commitment to not detaining families and children and not return to a cruel policy of the past. These Democrats have asked the administration to invest more into case management programs that would allow migrant families to push forward their immigration cases outside of a detention center. What do you think about that? I just, every time they bring this up, you know, oh, it's so cruel to detain families. We must allow families and we must allow children in. The cartels hear that as Oh, great, more sex slaves. I mean, there's that's literally, they sit there and get high on their own virtue when actually one step, think about it for one more second. What does it mean when you say you're not allowed to detain families? It means children get a free pass, which means cartels are completely incentivized to bring those children here, and those children get raped on the way here. Everybody knows this. So they sit there and they act like this is compassion when it is the most unbelievable cruelty you could possibly imagine. Mm. Yeah. Totally, totally horrific. And whoever is responsible for that fire, um, you know, hope there's justice done there. And uh, <laughs> the, the moral shame of leaving people to burn to death in a enclosed structure that the door's locked and you have the keys and you just casually walk past. Can't even imagine. Um, we'll have more rising right after this. Governor Katie Hobbs's press secretary, Jocelyn Berry, has resigned after facing accusations of promoting violence against transphobes in a now-deleted tweet, according to Fox News. The tweet in question included a gif of actress Gina Rollins in a scene from the movie Gloria holding two handguns, and Berry's caption read, us when we see transphobes. This came the same day transgender suspect Audrey Hale kicked killed six people at a Christian school in Nashville earlier this week. Governor Hobbs' office said yesterday in a statement, the governor does not condone violence in any form. This administration holds mutual respect at the forefront of how we engage with one another. The post by the press secretary is not reflective of the values of the administration. The governor has received and accepted the resignation of this press secretary. Now, the Arizona Freedom Caucus tweeted, calling for gun violence is never acceptable. So this tweet did come after the shooting. Uh, it was in response to another tweet. They've both subsequently been, been deleted. Uh, the press secretary's tweet was screenshotted. I, I can't actually tell what it was in response to. I, I don't know that it specifically had anything to do with the shooting, uh, but it, it was certainly in bad taste, given uh, what had happened, uh, and just kind of in bad taste generally, because it, it's not it's not a good idea, especially if you're a press secretary, right? If you're like in communications, it should be communications 101 not to suggest that you want violence uh, against people who, you know, happen to disagree with you on this particular question. So being transphobic is not, is not a crime or, or suggestive of violence itself. Uh, so, so there's no, it's not like self-defense or something. Um, that, that said, I've never like, overjoyed when people lose their jobs for tweeting the wrong thing. In fact, I 
tend to think this often goes too far. Now she's in an, like an explicitly communications role and also a communications role on behalf of someone else. So I can certainly understand why, uh, why uh, Hobbs doesn't want this person doing that job anymore. So I don't, I don't really think it's necessarily like cancel culture or something, but uh, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I, <laughs> the thing that I, I, that's really sticking in my craw about this is that if there hadn't been a mass shooting at a school, this person would still have their job, right? Like this, this, this kind of talk about quote unquote transphobes is totally de rigueur, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. out of the ordinary about this. Um, you know, there's a, a, a trans day of vengeance on the books, I believe for this Saturday. Um, there's so much talk about a trans genocide that now people who are sort of in the trans camp and the ally camp have taken up a language that um, is extremely violent because that is the appropriate language if there's an actual genocide happening, right? Now, it mm -hmm. turns out the data does not support the view that there is a trans genocide. It does not support the view that trans people are more likely to face violence because Americans are incredible people and don't think that way and don't see trans people that way. But I find it very interesting that the camp that is constantly going on about stochastic terrorism can then turn around and call people transphobes the way Congresswoman AOC did the other day to uh, libs of TikTok, Chaya Rachik, right? And, and, and claim that transphobes are committing a genocide. And that is in no way considered stochastic terrorism, right? Mm -hmm. That is in no way considered to be an act of violence or, you know, now I, we don't, we, we, I think we probably agree that like no words are acts of violence or it's, it's a very right. high bar to meet an act of violence. But when you accuse people of committing genocide, you are putting a target on their back to a certain extent. And so I keep coming back to that. Like, yes, of course it was in poor taste the day that uh, a transgender individual murdered three babies and three adults who were trying to protect them. But if that hadn't happened, this would not be considered in any way out of the ordinary. And this person would still have their job. And I, I feel a little bit bothered by that, especially because of the standard of speech that the left itself has set up. And it, it really lends credence to the argument that Tucker Carlson has been making for the last week, which is this view that somehow on the left now they want no one to have guns except trans people, um, you know, th this kind of does lend credence to that. Is there another situation in which a leftist like this woman who worked for Katie Hobbs would have would have advocated for holding two guns and shooting people, mm -hmm. right? Although I, I have to say, I am hearing a lot of conservatives saying that the opposite of that, that, that um, no, uh, everyone should have guns except trans people. Like being trans should be evidence of, of mental illness and you shouldn't be able to own a gun, which I think is the same kind of you know, identity politics oh, yes. uh, trend, Absolutely. Uh, um, Absolutely. or you know, yes. suggesting that all trans people are dangerous or violent, uh, you know, because of this uh, one incident. I, I think that's wrong if the group is trans people. I think that's wrong if the group is uh, Muslim people. If the group is Bernie Sanders supporters. If the group is far right MAGA people, you know, you you have to hold individuals accountable for their actions, not. You know, not uh, and and you know we saw a, a lot of in a lot of cases when where there have been uh, mass shootings where the perpetrator ha happens to be um, a white white male. Um, you know, I've read you know so many articles about you know the toxicity of whiteness and how can we get you know get rid of whiteness, um, and that is all you know coming from uh, progressive people, and it, it's all. I mean, it's it's not even like statistically valid because yeah, well, yes, the majority of shooters are 
white males because uh, because white people are most of the population. It's not like out of step with what you would expect. Uh, so so that is always like really dumb. But now I'm seeing you know pe people people on both sides of the political spectrum can't resist the allure of the stigmatize the group whenever these things happen. They do a, a bad job on both uh, sides of the political spectrum, I think, at resisting that temptation. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. And that is horrific. Of course, we should not be excluding trans people from, you know, the Second Amendment, right? I mean, that is a yeah. cl clearly a deplorable view. Um, you know, I, I do think that um, a lot of mass shootings happen in urban neighborhoods, and they get classified as crime, not mass shootings, because for some reason, we're not allowed to care mm -hmm. when the victims of mass shootings are black. That's the standard that somehow got set by the media. Um, so I, I think that that is a, a real problem categorization. But I completely agree with you. It is interesting that, you know, there have been a few on the right. I mean, not. I don't. I haven't seen this very, very much, but there have been a few people on the right who certainly are the first, you know, in line to say, don't blame a group when it's their group, mm -hmm. right? But suddenly now, you know, we need to look into this rhetoric around trans people and so forth and, and, and classifying it as a mental illness. But I will say the idea that there is a double standard, I think is, it's, it's undeniable at this point. And, um, you know, I was, last night I was volunteering and, and um, I volunteer with, there's a, a, a few um, uh, high school kids who volunteer at the same time as me. And I was asking them, you know, what they've seen online about this shooting, what they think about it, because we talk about the news. They hadn't seen anything about it. And they were completely unaware that the shooter was uh, trans, the alleged shooter was trans identified. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know that whenever there's a mass shooting in a school, they're, they're you know, their social media is full of it. They hadn't even heard about it. And these, these are, these are kids that spend a lot of time on TikTok. And so <laughs> it really did. It really, I mean, obviously it's, you know, anecdotal, but um, I, there is really this sense that there, you know, this is being treated in a very different way than it would have been treated if it was, you know, a, a white person, a white supremacist, a cisgendered person, mm. um, somebody from from one of those groups that the media very much enjoys taking on. Um, and I, you know, there was um, um, Jamal Bowman was making a big show of, you know, who, why does nobody care about our children? Why does nobody care about our children? You know, when in his own district. Uh, violent crime went up 30% last year, right? I mean, who? Can, why does nobody care about those children? You know, so of course there's you know hypocrisy to go around for days, as as usual. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about uh, that uh, aspect of this story uh, next week, and we'll have more rising right after this. Today marks the 400th day since the war in Ukraine started, though no foreign nations, including the U.S., have joined the fight with boots on the ground. Now, in his latest piece, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis makes the case that the U.S. has delivered a severe economic blow to Russia and that it has succeeded in weakening the Kremlin. Here to explain why the U.S. would be wise to help put an end to the Ukraine war is Colonel Davis himself. Welcome, Colonel. Thank you so much for joining us and for your service. Thank you. Um, so you mentioned um, while we were getting ready to start recording that this was a scary piece to write. Uh, why don't you tell us why? Yeah, because as I really kind of detail throughout this is that the, the West is kind of approaching this as they have just been mentally for the last 30 years where they were just could do virtually anything they wanted to on either the economic or, or the physical battlefield and not have to worry about any kind of response, whether that was Saddam Hussein, Bashar al-Assad, uh, Iran, or, or, you know, North, well, maybe not North Korea, but certainly most of these others that we have, uh, Gaddafi, 
where they literally could do nothing in response, whether we fire airstrikes into their countries, whether we have troops in their countries, they can't do anything about it. Russia is not like that. So the idea that we're seeking for the physical military defeat of Russia and driving them out of Ukraine, that's not an attainable military mission because unlike all of those other foes, Putin has nuclear weapons, the largest stockpile on the planet that could wipe out our country if in, in a worst case scenario. And the fact that that doesn't play strongly in our, uh, in our setting of objectives is troubling to me because that's how you stumble into bad mistakes. Lieutenant Colonel, when we've chatted previously, you have warned that we will eventually get to a place where even if we're sending weapons, even if we're sending supplies to the Ukrainian troops on the ground, there will be a point where they don't have, because they're, they're dying, both, both sides are losing a lot of people, but Russia has a lot more to lose, we'll get to the point where even if we're equipping them, arming them still, there aren't going to be the people to pick up the guns because they, we will have had the result where a lot of the able-bodied Ukrainians are, are injured or killed. Um, is that still looming on the horizon? Right, and, and we're getting closer to that day. And now then you're starting to see that actually talked about more in the Western press. Uh, both the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post in, in the last week or so have run stories specifically about how difficult it is for Ukraine to even uh, mobilize any further people, even to recruit people or to take them off the streets and force them into the into uniform, they're just running out of men already. And uh, you know, and the fact that the Ukraine hasn't launched any of these uh, counterattacks yet that have been being talked about literally for months uh, could be an evidence that it, they realize that they probably have one last big shot left in terms of their troops because they have somewhere around 80,000 people that are that are filled uh, with lots of Western weapons. A lot of them have been trained uh, in, in NATO countries. And the problem is that once that thing is launched, that's probably the last they'll have for a half year or maybe even more. And they might not even be able to generate that much power again, meaning that if you launch an attack and it doesn't work, now then you're vulnerable to a large Russian counterattack. And there's still more than 100,000 Russian troops that have not yet been engaged in the war that are just poised just outside of the contact zone, and they could come across any time. And if Ukraine doesn't have enough men, it truly doesn't matter how many Challenger or Abrams tanks that you send in or F-16 fighters. If there's not enough men to use them, it won't matter on the battlefield. You know, uh, this piece is so clear-eyed. I just want to read a paragraph from it. I, I really encourage everybody watching this to go and read the whole thing. Um, you write, today, both sides and their allies have a desire to win. Both sides fight tenaciously. Both populations believe they are in the moral right and neither has any intention of surrendering to the other. Both governments show they have considerable political stamina to keep fighting for the foreseeable future. What isn't the same, however, is the industrial capacity and the number of troops potentially available to each side. In those categories, the Russians have a distinct advantage. I mean, why is this kind of clear-eyed analysis of the stakes of the situation so absent from the political discourse around this conflict. You know, I, 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 that puzzles me greatly. And, and, you know, at least among a lot of the political discourse, uh, you know, I can understand to a degree because they don't, they're not steeped in military knowledge. They don't have military history or, or the, you know, the training in military activities to understand how combat power is made. What I have a big problem with is a lot of these TV generals that I see or retired American generals 
that are talking the same kind of nonsense, and they have to know what I'm talking about here. And look, mm-hmm. this is not like, uh, hey, this is my personal opinion is that purple's the best color, and he says that no, blue's the best color. You, you can't prove that one way or the other. This is a, pl- a practical, fundamental measurement that the, the industrial capacity on the Russian side and obviously their manpower is millions and millions more possible. Uh, and you just can see over the, you know, the history of warfare, the side that has the best capacity to continue waging war almost always wins. I mean, it's, it's virtually uh, all the time. And the chances that Ukraine could persist over time in this environment is just so low tactically that it's just mind-boggling to me why no one wants to address, you know, the elephant in the room on this. Before we let you go, I want to get your take on the continuing conversations about Nord Stream, uh, which, you know, the U.S. has signaled it's not particularly interested in having an investigation. Uh, the kind of blaming of the Russians has now shifted a little bit. The, like the official position of the U.S. and sort of U.S. media is that, well, maybe it was some some random group affiliated with Ukraine, but not the Ukrainian government and not the U.S. government. Um, does this continue to be, is this persuasive or is, or is the kind of slipping on this, you know, making way for an eventual revelation that it might have been the Zelensky government or even the U.S. government? Well, look, you know, in, in any kind of crime, you, you always first go to, to who's the benefactor, you know, which is trying to find out who actually committed a crime. You find out who benefited from this. And certainly the Russians are the last one on that list uh, because they already had full control over what flowed through the pipes. And, of course, they're not going to blow up their own pipeline and take that power out of their own hands. So you can right, rule them right off the bat. Then, you know, certainly the United States would benefit, uh, you know, so just on that alone, without any evidence or knowledge, you can say this just doesn't sound very plausible but the way we're going about it basically is like saying, yes, someone that no one knows who it is and nothing can be proven and we're not going to investigate and we're going to block everything. The United Nations Security Council is a little suspect. Hmm. Well, Lieutenant Colonel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Robbie. ABC's The View roasted ABC News analyst and former governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie, on his promise to take on former President Donald Trump. Let's watch. You better have somebody on that stage who can do to him what I did to Marco. Because that's the only thing that's going to defeat Donald Trump. And that means you got to have the skill to do it. And that means you have to be fearless because he will come back and right at you. What did he do to Marco? <laughs> it's like a horror movie. Like, I mean, it's, it's, first of all, who, Marco who? What did you do to Marco? I don't know who Marco, and who is Marco? Wait, he means Rubio, but he's making it sound like he's like in his basement or something. Well, Marco is little and Christie's big, maybe sat on him. I mean, Trump did give Chris Christie COVID. He gave but Chris what Christie he, COVID what did he and he do to Marco? I, I missed him. that chapter. I don't remember that chapter and I know my politics. So, so it seems like the ladies of The View forgot about the debate moment, uh, the debate stage. I, I remember that, yes, Chris Christie uh, effectively humiliated uh, Marco Rubio. They, they were both 
candidates for the 2016 Republican nomination. And uh, Christy, I, what was it specifically that he pointed out that Rubio was just like blandly repeating the same talking point over and over again, and he called him out for it? And it was, I mean, it's probably been built up to be, you know, more than it was because I, I don't think Rubio was ever. Um, uh, polling, you know, all that. I mean, they were all behind Trump at the whole time. So, so I, I don't know what to make. You know, I mean, Christie. I, I, yes, he had a very effective uh, rhetorical blow against Marco Rubio in that particular debate. He was taking on Donald Trump too, and unable, you know, to to sap Trump's momentum to get the nomination. Um, I, it, it sounded like he was kind of suggesting that, like, I should get in there, right? What do you people think about that? Are you ready for round two? But uh, I, I don't know why it would be. Why he'd be more effective than last? I mean, maybe he would be more effective than last time, but I, I don't know that uh, that Christie's really going to be that he's like endeared himself to more voters in in this interim. Uh, what what did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, if he's harping on some moment on some debate that neither of us can really recall, you know, if that's his glory moment that he's sort of calling upon and saying, "Put me in, coach. I'm ready. Remember right. that time that I." <laughs> um, honestly, I think Marco Rubio has been doing really important work um, on the populist front in terms of the Republican Party, um, pulling it away from that sort of chamber of commerce point of view, from that establishment point of view, and more towards the sort of being a family for the a party for families, a party for the working class. He's really well positioned, I think, maybe not to take on Trump, but, you know, he, he's he's actually been doing the work. What has mm. Chris Christie been doing? I would really like to know, you know. So I, I can't imagine that, you know, this is something that, you know, a lot of people remember. Um, uh, <laughs> I, I will point out, I think it's very interesting, that moment of, you know, what certainly if a Republican had done would have been called fat phobia from Joy yes. Behar, right? Making yes. fun of um, Christie's weight. Um, you know, they, 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 it really is appalling the way that they police the other side when they do things. And then in their moments, you know, there are people who are clearly considered punching bags who you're allowed to make fun of, you know, their gender, their race, their weight, whatever it is, you know, if they're sort of on the wrong side of things. Can you even imagine what would have happened if, if, if a Republican had made fun of the weight of, of, of an overweight, um, let's say a woman, an overweight Democratic politician? I mean, it, really, the, the view, the, the ladies of the view would not have taken kindly to that. Yeah, I, I don't know what the rules are for that, honestly. I, I try to avoid... <laughs> commenting negatively on anyone's appearance. I don't know if it, you just can't mock a, uh, you, you can mock a Republican, you can make fun of a man, I guess, I don't know, or maybe just it's Trump. Obviously, everybody, including the ladies of the view, make fun of, you know, Trump's appearance, his hair, all of that kind of stuff. But uh, I just, I try to shy away from that thing. But you're totally right that it's, it's, it's wildly inconsistent who it's okay, yeah. who, who you're, you're allowed to make fun of um, in, in those, uh, in those contexts. Yeah, I will say um, there was a really interesting moment. Actually, uh, Pierce um, Morgan's entire one-hour interview with Ron DeSantis is worth watching. I, I don't know if you watched it, Robbie, but I watched the whole thing. Um, it was... It was really, really instructive. Um, if you want to get a, a sense of somebody who is um, almost certain to be a presidential contender, mm -hmm. if not a president, um, it's really worth watching. Um, and there was a moment where um, uh, uh, Ron DeSantis's recent weight loss came up. Uh, it seemed like <laughs> Pierce was sort of trying to find out whether he was using Ozempic like other people, and apparently <laughs> no. He's simply, you know, given up sugar, given up the carbs. Um, yeah. And there was, of course, this anecdote about Ron DeSantis eating a pudding with his fingers, um, which, the, you know, the liberal media was trying to say, nobody's going to elect somebody who there's a story about them doing this. Obviously, nonsense, you know. Um, I don't know if it happened or not, but certainly not not something that could make somebody unelectable. 
so what do you think um, about this? Very, yeah. There's been a, a kind of a, a vibe that DeSantis has actually not had a great month, um, that he responded not uh, effectively to the potential Trump indictment. Um, Trump people felt, you know, the, the diehard MAGA people felt a little bit betrayed. I think even some conservative commentators who are, you know, kind of in the middle or more DeSantis leading still didn't like how he handled it. You know, there was some reporting on, uh, you know, big high profile supporters. You know, is he, is DeSantis really ready to take on Trump? You know, why hasn't he yet? That whole kind of thing. Uh, are you buying that? Um, you know, I, there, uh, <laughs> In a controversial video uh, that was released on Twitter yesterday, Vivek Ramaswamy um, claimed, I don't know if this is true, but he claimed that there's somebody on his team who um, was approached by the DeSantis team um, for a DeSantis presidential run, but that he, you know, that nothing is going to start before July. So that it seems, you know, if, if take that right. as you will, right, uh, you know, that that is sort of a sort of a, an informal date. Um, you know, I, 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 I am not the only person I know who is excited to see DeSantis and Trump on a debate stage together. I don't know how it's going to go. But from speaking to people I know who are very much in the Trump train, um, they feel a, a level of loyalty towards Trump. They feel also some of them that, you know, he, he was robbed in 2020, whether they I don't think they they mean it literally like that by the tally, but by, you know, the suppression of information, let's say, right, that we know now, like the social media, what they did with the Hunter Biden story. So there is a level of loyalty that's still there, but they are very interested in DeSantis. They see him as a more effective version of Trump. Now, we also know from recent polling that the people who are sort of much more on the Trump track at least in these early polls, are people who make under 50K a year. And the people who are leaning more towards DeSantis tend to be making over 50K a year. They tend to be, you know, the whiter, older, more established side of the Republican Party. Whereas, you know, the, the even uh, Republican voters of color who now make up 18% of Republicans um, are leaning, are, you know, sort of more in, in the Trump train. It's a really interesting moment for the Republican Party. I don't know. I, I think it's a very exciting moment. I'm really, mm -hmm. like, looking forward to seeing how this develops, how this goes out. I I don't think this is going to be a bad ma matchup. I think it's going to be a great matchup, especially if you're a Democrat. I mean, you, you've got to be wanting to see this happen, right? See that, you know, the gloves come off. So I, I'm not really buying it. I, I do think it's too early to tell from polling. But just from the people that I know who are so, you know, in, you know, who still feel a lot of loyalty towards Trump, yeah. they're very interested in DeSantis as well. They don't look down on him. They don't have negative feelings towards him. They still feel like they owe something to Trump, but they're very interested in DeSantis as well. Yeah. I'm excited to see them go head to head as well, whether or not Chris Christie is involved in the matchup. More rising after this. Now, earlier this week, we covered comments by Senator Ron Johnson about Cathay Bank, an American-owned and uh, bank with alleged ties to the Chinese-American community in Los Angeles, disclosing that the Biden family bank records matched U.S. regulator records. So the senator told Fox News's Maria Bartiromo, quote, a bank from China, let's face it, the Communist Party controls those types of institutions. They willingly gave us the documents that backed up the Treasury records. Ranking member of the House Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, Senator Ron Johnson, is here with us to discuss. Welcome to Rising. Thank you so much for your time. Happy to be here. So I'd like to, to get you to react to a statement that we procured from a spokesperson of Cathay Bank who told Rising that the bank is an American bank founded, headquartered, and publicly traded in the U.S. Uh, 
proudly serves our local community across nine states, uh, founded more than 60 years ago, and Cathay is not in any way controlled by the Chinese government, and any suggestion to the contrary is uh, false. Can you respond to that, uh, you know, rebuttal to your, your point about the Chinese ties? Well, so we hear from TikTok as well. <laughs> right, right. So, so you know, you're again. I can't, I can't, I can't point by point, uh, uh, you know, okay. rebut anything. But uh, again, I, I thought it was very, uh, very interesting that uh, that is the bank that we obtained records from uh, without subpoena, without any kind of compulsory process. And uh, as Senator Grassley and I have been trying to uh, raise the alarm for the American public about a what I think a deeply compromised president uh, since uh, September of 2020. Uh, it's amazing to me that it just has never been picked up in, in the media by and large. Hmm. So what do you think about uh, the, the TikTok issue? Obviously, there are several uh, legislative attempts being made to uh, get to ban TikTok from the U.S. Um, I, I think there, there have been some, some conservatives, some colleagues of yours, including Rand Paul, have, uh, have criticized this effort. Tucker Carlson has criticized the Restrict Act specifically uh, for the, you know, the other effects it might have on, on regulation of speech on social media companies. What's your view on this? I think there seems to be a, a general awareness and concern that uh, a company like TikTok can be, you know, hoovering up all this uh, information on on Americans, and there's no control over you know wh where that information goes, and there's a great suspicion that's going right back to uh, the Communist Party in China. So I, I think there's awareness, there's concern about that, and there's probably a general agreement that uh, that needs to be stopped. I think the problem with the Restrict Act, uh, it probably goes too far and gives uh, regulators far too much power that concerns people. I, again, I think the people that probably co-sponsored this bill maybe weren't thinking it all the way through or didn't understand the ramifications of some of the language. Uh, so I, I don't think the Restrict Act has much of a chance of moving forward, but some, some form of a prohibition of TikTok probably will. So is there is there um, you know movement for a new act, a different act, a Republican-led effort, for example? Well, again, this is kind of late breaking news. Uh, the revelation of of the details of the Restrict Act. Um, you know, I think there's movements in the House. You know, these things take a little bit of time to sort themselves out. But you're saying that there is going to be continued appetite for some way of restricting, banning TikTok, even if it's not through the Restrict Act. Yeah, I, I, I think it's a pretty safe assumption. You see, you know, states, you see, you know, a number of entities banning TikTok because, again, the legitimate concern that uh, this is information that is uh, being hoovered up by uh, this company, uh, and there's really, from what people can tell, there's really no restrictions on where that information goes. Again, mm -hmm. th they're not believing the TikTok uh, CEO when he says, "Oh, we have no connection to the, the Communist Party uh, in China." Uh, right. Go, Go ahead, Bacha. I was going to say, I want to switch gears a little bit from TikTok in China to um, Ukraine and Russia. Um, this week, sir, um, you expressed doubts over um, continued U.S. assistance to Ukraine. I'm calling you called the war unwinnable, and you suggested that it's time for negotiations. Um, this is a very brave position. Um, talk us through um, what kind of um, what can you put behind that? I mean, you know, we're both, I think, very much in agreement with you, contrary to to where the media, the mainstream media is, and, and where most of your colleagues are. Um, Talk us through what you can do to make this this negotiations position more of a reality. Well, you put some words in my mouth. Let, let me explain what I what I have talked about in a very complex situation. Uh, 
I always start out saying that nobody wants to provide aid and comfort to the war criminal Vladimir Putin. I mean, the atrocities, the war crimes are just you know, beyond the pale. Uh, I think we all support the, the courage of the tenacity of the Ukrainian people. Uh, the point I've been trying to make, you know, I think there was a, I think there was a point in time of uh, dissuading Putin from invading, but uh, under the weakness of Joe Biden, that was not, that didn't happen. Uh, I think there might have been a point in time when, uh, because of the bravery of the uh, Ukrainian people and the support given to Ukraine by the West, that uh, uh, Russia was back on its heels, and there might have been a moment where they might have decided to just say no mas and and you know retreat. Uh, certainly, the, the Ukrainian uh, military force uh, made some great gains, but now, uh, more than a year into this war, what we are seeing is just a grinding stalemate. And it, I'm just talking. I'm just saying that everybody, I mean, on all sides, need to recognize the reality of the situation. It's not a fair fight. It's not a level playing field, uh, because Russia has nuclear weapons. Nobody is going to be lobbing missiles into Russia. Uh, to to wear down the support inside Russia for the war effort. I mean, Vladimir Putin controls propaganda there. You know, except for the families uh, sending their sons uh, into the into the battle, uh, there still seems to be a great deal of support for for Russia. For Vladimir Putin, this is an existential issue. He can't afford to lose, and so he will continue to lob missiles into population centers, into the infrastructure. Slowly but surely, he will destroy. Ukraine. And the only point I've been trying to make is at some point in time, we're going to have to recognize that reality, uh, realize that uh, a settlement six months from now will have a more destroyed Ukraine, will be in, you know, everybody will be in a worse position. And so I'm, I'm just advising everybody on all sides of this uh, to take a look at what the reality situation is and end this as soon as possible. Switching uh, gears yet again, you know, you've been at the forefront of, uh, of efforts also to uh, disclose, declassify, give public access uh, to more of the documents relating to NIH, uh, Dr. Fauci's conversations, uh, you know, what he thought about the lab leak early on. Um, you know, obviously, there was the, the, the bill that passed and Biden has signed. Can the American people trust that they're actually going to get access to documents showing what our own health officials were thinking as the pandemic was breaking out, uh, you know, the, our potential complicity in what might have been the origins of the pandemic. Unfortunately, no, the American people cannot trust the, this administration to be transparent. I would say the deep state to be transparent. Um, you know, I, I've been investigating different federal agencies now for, you know, six, seven, eight years. Uh, I have found them almost completely opaque. Uh, they do not, they know what they did. They're, they don't give up their secrets very easily. So what we're talking about right now is under FOIA. Uh, again, FOIA should be a voluntary process. Uh, American citizen requests information. The agencies ought to turn that information. That's turn over that information. That's how it's designed. But unfortunately, American citizens always have to go to court to have uh, the courts compel the agencies to turn over information. Then, it's, of course, it's heavily redacted. Uh, Congress is not subject to those redactions. So when 4,000 pages of the uh, HHS documents, a lot of these were Fauci emails, were uh, provided under FOIA in June of 2021, uh, I, I got four other members of the Senate Homeland Security Committee and under a law that if we request information, the, the agency shall turn those over to us. Not we'll think about it or consider it. They shall turn it over. 
uh, here we are more than two years or going on to two years later. Uh, there have been some accommodations. We took those 4,000 pages, narrowed it down to 400 pages. Fortunately, Chairman Ossoff uh, supported my efforts here. And so we got uh, Secretary Becerra to start showing us these uh, redacted FOIA documents in a reading room. We couldn't take copies, could take notes. We've gone through about 350 pages through January of 2022. We're down to the last 50 pages and they will not turn them over to us. So we're down to the last 50 pages of just this tranche. You know, there's all kinds of other information that they're not being transparent, that they're not providing, but just this known tranche, which by the way, even in the redacted form, uh, shows an awful lot of uh, cover-up by on the part of uh, Anthony Fauci. Uh, so my guess is uh, there's something pretty interesting under those last 50 pages, and we're just making that uh, request more public, and it'll probably take public pressure uh, to get HHS to come clean and provide that information to the American people through their elected representatives. Mm. Senator, thank you so much for your time today. We so appreciate it. Have a good day. better known as Libs of TikTok, a Twitter account uh, that weighs in from an anti-wokeness perspective, often on the transgender issue. Reichick confronted Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez outside her office about uh, whether AOC had lied about something Libs of TikTok had written. Let's watch. Oh, thank you. And you can watch the rest of that video. Uh, the Heritage Foundation has it on their Twitter account and elsewhere. So actually, it looks like I, I think she went to uh, Libs of TikTok, went to AOC's office, didn't get a hold of the, her there, and then maybe confronted her in a bookstore or something is what, what that looked like. Um, yeah, so it hinges on whether AOC did misrepresent what Libs of TikTok had said about Boston's Children's Hospital, I believe. You want to pick up the story, Bacha? Right. So here's the quote from uh, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez. During a hearing, she asked a former Twitter executive about a tweet of Rachik's. She said, here's the quote, are you aware that from August 11th to August 16th, that account posted false information about Boston Children's Hospital, claiming they were providing hysterectomies to children? That, that's the quote from, a, from AOC. She claims that Rachik falsely tweeted that Boston Children's Hospital is providing hysterectomies to children. Now, it, the, the complaint, the ethics complaint, which was brought by the Heritage Foundation, argues that actually what Rachik had tweeted was true um, and that Boston Children's Hospital does perform gender-affirming surgery to, quote, eligible adolescents, and that it has performed 65 double mastectomies on minors over the course of three years. So I think that this is going to come mm. down to whether, you know, performing hysterectomies to children and performing hysterectomies to minors are the same thing or whether they're different things. Regardless, um, I, I, it was such an interesting interaction because you saw Libs of TikTok initially, you know, taking this photo with AOC, AOC clearly thinking that she was a fan who wanted a photo, and then Libs of you know, Rachik explaining to AOC who she was and AOC saying, you know, you're actually a huge transphobe and I don't want to share space with you, whatever that means. Um, what did you make of that interaction, Robbie? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of an ambush interview, essentially, because Libs of TikTok set it up that way. They had, Again, it was from the Heritage Foundation. They were recording. Um, I, I don't know. It kind of seems like a political stunt to me. Uh, I, I don't know that, I, like, this. the matter is not clear-cut 
uh, it's not clear cut enough, uh, clear cut enough, as you just explained, to my mind, for it to be like an ethics matter, really, that maybe AOC slightly misrepresented what Libs of TikTok had said about it. Maybe she didn't. I kind of, I, I think it's probably just kind of like a PR stunt, probably for the Libs of TikTok account, which is fine. You know, I mean, it's fine to confront our members of Congress. Like, I don't think they should be shielded from the public. Totally fine to, you know, to to approach her an event, you know, ask her a question, record her. That's all totally fine. And as a journalist, I absolutely support that. Um, you know, you shouldn't, you know, get in her face or, you know. Get, scare her or, you know, knock her down or something, but none of that happened. So it's totally fine. It just doesn't seem very particularly constructive to me. Do you have a different view? No, I, I agree with you. I mean, first of all, I mean, of all the things to come after AOC about, this seems sort of, you know, like not at the top of my list. Um, and I think, you know, to me, um, the, the work that exposing the videos um, that Libs of TikTok does the importance of that work is often undercut by the commentary that Rachik mm -hmm. puts on it and, and this kind of stunt. Um, because I think on the one hand, it is extremely important to know that there are people who are bragging about doing things that I think even a lot of liberals think are extremely inappropriate in the classroom and exposing that stuff is so important. But there's often a gloss on it that undercuts the kind of the purity of that um, endeavor um, that, that suggests a kind of... Um, I guess a more personal <laughs> mm -hmm. relationship with the mission um, that I'm not sure that I approve of. You know, I, I think that the the way to approach this is to say, like, look, you know, all good people can agree that you know there's a line that you shouldn't be crossing with kids, and there should be people who see it as their job to do the journalistic work of exposing when that's happening and making sure that the kids are protected. Um, but at the same time, that approach has to come from. Um, a moral high ground, right? Um, and if you if you uh, if you betray that you have certain feelings of disgust, let's say, or, or whatnot, um, that sometimes come out in the glosses that 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 Rachik puts on the videos. I think that that does compromise the importance of the mission. What about you? What do you think, Robbie? Yeah, very uh, very well said. Look, there's obviously a understandable uh, public debate happening from a policy standpoint about. You know, when is the right age for someone to be able to consent to have potentially irreversible surgery or you know, things of that nature? Um, I, I, people, I think, have legitimate questions about whether this is being kind of too easily accessed by uh, young people who are depressed or anxious, particularly young women, um, who may it might be part of a social contagion effect. Um, the, you know, the affirmation part, are, are, are the counselors, are the doctors really making sure this is in the child's best interest? Is it just kind of fashionable, that kind of thing? You know, from my standpoint, I, I think this can help and has helped um, some young people. And if they really understand what they're getting into and their family supported, and that's what, you know, a, a, a medical expert who is not just, you know, co-signed some fad, but really thinks it's in the child's best interest, then fine. We have questions about whether that's what's happening. And, and I think it's okay to raise those questions. But yes, this, it very easily veers from some people who are very animated by this issue into a kind of I mean, yeah, into a kind of stigmatizing of all trans people or saying that like all trans people are out to get kids or something like that. That's just, that's very, um, that's not true. That's, you know, mean spirited and is kind of just, you know, going after a poorly understood other. Um, it, it dovetailing a little bit with the, what I've said about the, uh, the, the Nashville shooter, where it's, it's like, it's, it's notable that this was a transgender individual because 
I mean, that is part of the story, and is it, it, it is unusual. Uh, it is it is so. I, th I think it is fine to comment on it and to note it. You know, very at the top of reporting on it, even in, in the headline we did in our own headline because it's 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 novel, it's notable. Um, but that should not lead toward the stigmatization of like trans people or the or treating trans people like they're dangerous or violent or something. Um, so I, I feel a little and and I, I think some of this commentary, um, you know, without. You know, I'd have to look specifically what what specific people have said, but I do see, at least on social media, a kind of slipperiness here, where it's just it, it seems again st like stigmatizing all trans people, um, with, with that should not be the goal at all. Maybe that is the goal of some people, um, certainly not mine. Yeah, I mean, there's a real difference between saying what I think the polling shows 65% of Americans want transgender individuals to have, um, you know, legal protections from discrimination and mm -hmm. housing in the workplace and so forth, and then saying, actually, we support this as something that should be available as a choice for children and minors, right? There's a big difference between that. And I, I, I worry about the left erasing that difference, and I worry about the right erasing that mm -hmm. difference. I will just say, for, for a, an elected official to call somebody a transphobe like that, um, I think is very inappropriate, and especially an elected official who has made a habit of accusing critics of stochastic terrorism, as she called it, to use a word that suggests a level of, you know, animus or violence, right? Something that could break into violence at a time when there's all this talk about a transgenocide. I think mm -hmm. that's also very dangerous and very inappropriate. And, you know, um, you know, I, I don't know the, the legal ramifications of an ethics complaint, but surely, I mean, to me, that was much more um, aggressive and problematic than, you know, saying children instead of minors during a hearing. If I had uh, 10 seconds to ask AOC a question, I'd ask about, <laughs> you know, where is the left, where is the progressive left on uh, on Ukraine, Ukraine sanity, on questioning 100%. the funding for the Ukraine war, something that's going on in Republican circles, not so much in uh, Democratic 100%. circles. And she has been asked about this at events she's attended, and I, I think that is uh, that is good work. So, so certainly Congress, members of Congress, not just AOC, you know, should be questioned, should be scrutinized in public, on camera. That's all absolutely fine. That's, you know, that's the work of democracy. That's not, speech is not violence. That's just the work of democracy. More rising after this. Senators Rand Paul and Josh Hawley, both Republicans, are at odds when it comes to TikTok and banning it, potentially. Let's watch some of this. If Republicans want to continuously lose elections for a generation, they should pass this bill to ban TikTok, a social media app used by 150 million people, primarily young Americans. This brilliant strategy comes while polls indicate that 71% of young women and men, 53% of young men, voted for a Democrat candidate for Congress. Admittedly, many Democrats have joined Republicans in calling for this ban, but like most issues, the blame will stick to the Republicans more. The Republican strategy to ban TikTok comes simultaneously with GOP complaints of domestic social media companies canceling and censoring conservatives. The vice president of FreedomWorks, John Tamney, perhaps described this situation best. Nauseating harassment of TikTok presumes Americans will be saved from Chinese authoritarianism if U.S. politicians act like Chinese authoritarians. We're going to be saved from speech if we ban it in our country. My goodness, could we think of anything more antithetical to the freedom of speech? For me, it's an easy answer. I will defend the Bill of Rights against all comers, 
even if need be, from members of my own party. Senator from Missouri. Would the uh, senator from K Kentucky entertain a question? I object. No. The objection is heard. Madam President. Senator from Missouri. Madam President, I have never before heard on this floor a defense of the right to spy. I didn't realize that the First Amendment contained a right to espionage. The senator from Kentucky mentions the Bill of Rights. I must have missed the right of Chinese governments to spy on Americans in our Bill of Rights, because that's what we're talking about here. Oh, the senator from Kentucky can watch as many dance videos as he wants. I have no objection to that. Could watch them on this floor for all I care. Fine. So this is a big debate going on right now uh, about what to do about TikTok. And I know you and I uh, disagree on this. There's been some interesting uh, <laughs> bedfellows here. Uh, Tucker Carlson has spoken out against the Restrict Act. Rand Paul has spoken out against this. And, then, and AOC and Ilan Omar. And then you have a lot of people uh, like Josh Hawley, Mitt Romney, uh, others uh, thinking that this is an urgent national security issue. So, uh, so I, I take uh, Rand Paul's point at the beginning that I, I agree with him that you know, banning um, an app that is extremely popular with millions of young people would hurt the GOP. I don't think that's the main reason even to oppose uh, the, the TikTok ban, although I do agree with that. My main issue is that um, the, the censorship, I, I believe, I accept that the Chinese government has influence on TikTok that is bad, but we've seen so many cases of the American government, the FBI, the CDC, the State Department, Homeland Security, and on and on and on, exercising similar uh, horrific uh, powers over our, over a TikTok, over a, not TikTok, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. And can, like, let's concentrate on that. I, like, I don't, we're not going to have the, like the censorship is already happening, and we need to do something about that. And like getting rid of TikTok, I don't think improves the speech landscape at all. But I know you disagree. So what is your uh, pitch for why we should do something about TikTok? I mean, okay. First of all, like uh, you know, ostensibly our government is supposed to have some sort of oversight and ability to uh, correct the direction that you know organizations like the CIA, the FBI, and so forth, you know, are are going in. And so when they you know spy on us in a way that we don't like, we have the ability to elect uh, you know elected officials to do something about that. Now, obviously. Things are not happening as fast as we want. Obviously, there are real problems with getting, you know, our desires, you know, our wishes heard in Washington as Americans. But at the end of the day, you cannot compare a foreign adversary to bad actors within your own government. I mean, I think at that point, you really have to believe that uh, the deep state is out to get us. Like that, the and I, I just think that that involves a level of conspiratorial thing. Like to compare American institutions, even ones that are behaving in ways we don't like, to a foreign adversary that is committed to our destruction through our children's hearts and minds. Um, to me, that's just, um, I, I think that that is just not compelling. It's not convincing because of the level of oversight. I'm not saying you have to believe that the FBI has our best interests at heart, although I, I think, you know, it is 
strange to hear people on the right suddenly think that, you know, that, that they, they actually want to destroy America. You don't have to think that they have our best interests at heart. You have to think that the oversight system is going to work. And, you know, right now it is working. I mean, right now there is just huge amounts of transparency in terms, you know, from the Twitter files in terms of how this happened, how this went down and a real push and desire for accountability coming from, you know, the highest levels of the government, not, of course, the president, because it was under his watch and uh, probably something that he wanted. But, you know, if you get we get a a Republican um, president, you're going to see real action on this front. So I, I to me, that idea that you can compare a foreign adversary committed to our destruction to the hearts and minds of our kids you know, literally instructing them on how to kill themselves through anorexia and pranks and 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 destroying their ability to interact with humans, to go outside and get exercise. I mean, just really destroying their for- their adversary through the hearts and minds of their kids. I just think you can't compare that to, you know, institutions in America. The yes, yes, I agree, totally have lost their way, but we have the ability as Americans to to force them back. I mean, why do you think the con? Content on TikTok is more harmful for young people than the content on Instagram. I don't at all. I, I, I'm sh- look. I'm sure there's bad content. Uh, on, there's bad content on all social media platforms. Some of it. Um, I, I don't think on the whole it's bad for young people. I think right. Some young people, yes, they're too on their phones. Take their phones away. Make them go outside. I agree with all of that. Um, I mean, we've basically criminalized being like letting your kids, you know play outside and have some sense of autonomy and I would, you know, change all of those laws. But I, I don't, I mean, TikTok is like, it's collaborative and social and it can be educational. Again, I don't think all the content on it is good. I'm sure you can find banned content as you can like on every other corner of the internet. But to say that the kids need like protection from it because they're going to they're gonna find some bad stuff on occasion, I, I think that's, I mean, I, I do think that clashes with the ethos of the First Amendment. Um, it, it, that puts like the federal government in the position of being parents to, again, to millions of kids. I mean, we, we expect, you know, we, 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 we ex- young, young people are getting their news this way, right? They, they're, they're becoming better informed. Um, I, I, like, our, our, own, our show isn't, I don't, I don't know that people watch it on TikTok, but they, they watch it on YouTube. What if, like, what if, like, oh, YouTube is a, has a foreign adversary connection or something, or we're worried it's being used to, to, by, by foreign actors, let's ban it. Like, I would be, I would be like, well, no, they're, they're not going to be able to watch our show. I'm mean, not to, to, like, to personalize it or something, but alternative content, like content alternative to the mainstream media and all that, um, uh, flourishes on all sorts of social media platforms. And I think suddenly depriving millions of people of that will be way worse for their health than, you know, than, than the alternative. I mean, I, 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 I really do not like the idea of 150 million Americans getting their news from an app that is basically controlled by our foreign adversary, right? That, that's ba- I would rather they be uninformed than be informed through an app that filters information through what's good for China. And we know that it's doing that because we know what it looks like in China. We, Doyen, which is the TikTok version, looks very different. It teaches you basically how to be a good Chinese citizen and how to garden. I mean, that's that's all basically all you can get on that app. And then it kicks you off after four minutes if you're under 16. Well, so, that's you know, probably, we know uh, that... I, I'm sure, like, I'm sure the Chinese version is probably relentless state propaganda for children. Like, China's not a free country, right? Yeah, like, you're right, but that is bad. Like, the government having the power to no, but but limit kids' exposure is that... to state-approved subjects for 40 minutes is a bad thing that China has that, thank goodness, the U.S. doesn't. Right, but I'm, I'm saying, like, if they're doing it there, they're doing it here, right? So, um, 
right? Like if they have the power to do that to Doyen, they are certainly doing that with TikTok here. So you asked me, is the content worse? Mm -hmm. Yes, it is worse. Um, the, there is much more content there just because there's more kids there, but there's more content there on how to kill yourself, on how to be, you know, uh, substance abuse, how to get illegal drugs, how to cross the border illegally, <laughs> um, how to uh, be an anorexic. All of this stuff exists in, in spades and spades and spades on TikTok, but um, it's not just the content. It's that it is so addictive. That algorithm is so good. Kids will be on it for 10 hours straight. And so whatever is on it, they're just getting more and more of it. And it is all CCP approved, right? So the CCP very actively engages in suppressing information that they don't like, meaning everything that's on there is stuff you know that the Chinese who created this excellent algorithm is sure is going to hurt us as a nation. I don't think there's any evidence that their suppression of content is more so than the American Again, the FBI and the CDC's Robbie, suppression of content. Robbie, have you tried on going on TikTok and, and searching Uyghur? Try it one time. You, you it's can, a no, very enlightening I, I, I have. You can find. So, I, look, I'm not, again, I'm not. There's very little. There's just They take very, it down. Very, they do bad things. Little. Don't like it. Not making apologies for it. But again, like you, again, you couldn't, we mentioned this earlier, you couldn't discuss the lab leak on Facebook for an entire year. Yeah. Um, so it's bad. It's bad when American companies do it and we need yeah. to intervene and we need to get to the bottom of it. It is much, much worse when a country that is committed to our destruction does it using our children to do it. That's just war. It's a, an order of magnitude worse, plus all the spying. I mean, this is what I don't understand. Yeah, the Restrict Act, I agree. It's terribly written. I mean, it's obviously a power grab by Democrats, okay? I, let's get that off the table. Totally agree. But Josh Hawley's bill, just to limit it from government devices that are literally in government build that are literally have government documents, secret classified government documents on them. What could possibly be wrong with that? I mean, I don't care if they take it away from, uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's necessary, but I also don't care if they limit, you know, state employees. That's fine. That's fine by me. Um, look, I, I appreciate their ability to do you know, to do to collect our data. I, again, I think all the social media companies are collecting our data, and it's going to be hard to put that genie back in the bottle. And I mean, they they could also like they could if they were not just gathering it, they could purchase access to it as well. You know, that's going to be a problem. We're going to be contending with uh, on on all levels. Um, but uh, but well, good good debate on this subject. Uh, we got to wrap up the week, I guess. Bacha, what do you have going on this weekend? Oh boy. I haven't even thought that far ahead, Robbie. What about you? <laughs> All right. Well, I actually don't know what I'm doing either. I'm definitely seeing the new Dungeons and Dragons movie uh, next week, though. I think uh, I think not uh, not this weekend. I'm not quite sure when it comes out. Super excited for that. Uh, there's going to be a Super Mario Brothers movie, a new uh, Legend of Zelda video game. I'm just, I'm in heaven. It's, I'm in nerd paradise. So uh, if you missed any of our content, you can tune in tomorrow and throughout the weekend. We'll post our highlights from the last few days. Please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you don't miss any of it. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're available anywhere you can consume podcasts. Uh, I'll see you next week, Batya. Thanks for joining us.